0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, the guys are getting some Bibles together, they're going to be at the front and they're going to walk to the back and if you need a Bible, then get their attention and they'll get one of those Bibles to you that's marked at Ephesians chapter 4, so you can look at verse 28 with us when we get to that in just a bit, Ephesians 4. The Bible in general, and the book of Ephesians in particular, teach us that God is recreating people, people who in the past were identified outwardly by how they talked and what they did. Those outward characteristics were consistent with the flawed, sinful, inward character with which all of us are born. And chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians are all about what God has done to change us from the inside. And then beginning in chapter 4 to the end of the book at chapter 6, we're told that we must live in a manner that's consistent with that new life that God has given. Chapter 4 and verse 1 makes the transition from the one portion of the book to the other, and it says that we're to live worthy of the calling that we've received. Verses 1 through 16 of that chapter, chapter 4, tell us that we're to be a unified people. We're to be unified because we're to reflect the unity that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We are to be unified because God is unified. And then, beginning in verse 17, we're taught that we're to be holy because God is holy. And then look at verse 22 of chapter 4. It says you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 24 says that the new self is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what is the righteous and holy look that God wants us to have? How can one who's becoming increasingly righteous and increasingly holy be identified? And verse 25 begins to give the answer to that. It starts with the word, therefore. Therefore, because God has given you new life, therefore, and then it says each of you must... And that's then followed by six things that go all the way to chapter 5 and verse 4 that we must do in order to look like what we are. These six identifiers of the new self that go from chapter 4 and verse 25 to chapter 5 and verse 4 are the particulars that we're to put off and put on. And those terms, put off and put on, were used in New Testament times of changing clothes. It's saying that we're to put off the clothes, the behavioral identifiers of the old self, and put on the clothing that identifies us with the new self, the new you. We've seen in the first two weeks of this series, a series titled How to Show Your Faith. We've seen the first two of these six articles of behavioral clothing that we're told the Christian is to wear. Now, if you look at the outline that's inserted in your program, we give you an outline every week, and so if you don't have that out already, then take a look at that, and you'll see that the first two of these items of clothing are filled in up at the top. In fact, they're filled in and they're grayed out because we've considered them a couple of weeks ago. Now, if you were not here when we looked at those, you can hear those messages as you can hear all of our messages at our website, and the address for our website is at the bottom of that insert, cbctrenton.com. Today we're going to consider the third of the six articles of the new Christian wardrobe. Let's ask God to help us then as we do. Our Father, we thank you for allowing us to gather as your people in your presence with your word opened before us to consider what you tell us about your character and then what we are to conform to if we are to conform to the right standard, the standard of righteousness that is you. Lord, we can't do this apart from your aid. We can't even consider these words of yours without you opening our hearts and helping us to focus our minds. We certainly can't put these things into practice apart from your spirit and apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask you to help us now, to help us this week and at all times. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I say in your outline, in this third article of clothing, that the new you is to wear. The new you is to wear, from verse 28 of chapter 4, generosity. Generosity. The new you wear is not only truth, not only peace, but generosity. Verse 28 says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those who are in need. Now, I remind you that each of these six qualities of holy living that are given to us from chapter 4 and verse 25 to chapter 5 and verse 4, each of them has three characteristics. They are each relational, they are each positive, and they are each reasonable. They're relational in that they are carried out in the context of our relationships, all six of them. They're positive because they don't just tell us what not to do, but what it is we're to do. And they're reasonable, meaning that a reason is given for the command. And chapter 4 and verse 28 has all three of these. It's relational. It tells us that we're to give to others. It's positive because it tells us what to do and also what not to do. And it's reasonable. The reason given is that we might have in order to give to others. Verse 28 is about how and why we acquire possessions. Like all Christian conduct, how we acquire possessions has to be consistent with our identity in Christ that was explained to us in chapters 1 through 3. So I want to see, want us to see what this verse tells us about, first of all, the wrong way to acquire possessions. I say in your outline, there is a wrong way to acquire possessions. In verse 21. 8 says anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer now as when we looked at the issue of truth back in verse 25 a few weeks ago you may not think that this prohibition against stealing is something that you need to be reminded of after all none of us here are thieves I assume but let me ask you have you ever taken supplies at work don't raise your hand A paper given at the American Psychological Association Symposium on Employee Theft presented a a breakdown on the $8 billion that inventory shortages cost department and chain stores every year. $8 billion. Of those losses, 10% were due to clerical error. 30% were due to shoplifting. And a shocking 60%, that's $16 $16 million each day, is attributed to theft by employees. So have you ever taken supplies from work? Or how about using your employer's time for things other than what you were hired for? Your boss is paying you to perform a task, and if you're not doing that, then you're stealing his money. Or how about padding your expense report? Now we don't call these things stealing because that sounds, you know, so like sinful. But our culture and we as Christians have mastered the art of euphemism and evasion of the truth. We use words to make unpleasant things sound better and avoid the full effect of our actions. Some time ago, I heard about a General Motors employee that was dismissed from his job for unprofessional conduct. Now, what was the official offense, according to the company? Misappropriation of company property. Now, the Bible's word for that is stealing. The guy didn't misappropriate company property. The scoundrel stole from the company. You know that the Eighth Commandment prohibits stealing. It says simply and directly, you shall not steal. And this command in Ephesians four and verse twenty-eight is based on that foundational command from sixteen hundred years earlier. When the Bible prohibits stealing, it's assuming that there's ownership of private property. Same thing going back to the law of Moses, it assumed the ownership of private property. If all property and goods were communal, then there would be no such thing as stealing. I can only be stolen from if I actually own what's taken. If it's a crime to take that which belongs to someone else, then that other person has a legitimate right of ownership. Let's give you an example of how sometimes we don't think correctly about this. Churches are tax exempt. And sometimes you'll hear it phrased in a way that suggests the government is giving to churches and other nonprofits, giving them something. But hear this, simply not taking what doesn't belong to you is not giving you anything. Now, the government has the power to tax. We're going to see that in just a bit. But non-taxation is not a gift. It can only be a gift if it's yours to begin with. Our Constitution recognizes the right of ownership when both the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments state that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So in prohibiting stealing, the Bible is preserving private property. And so we're commanded to avoid direct theft of someone else's property. We're not to take something that doesn't belong to us. Breaking into a house or a place of business, breaking into a car, stealing something from a store shelf, walking out without paying, all of these are theft. And saying to ourselves to justify, well, the salesperson didn't see it, doesn't justify it. Accepting too much change from the cashier is indeed theft. Some of you may remember Napster. That was a computer file-sharing service. They were sued and later had to file for bankruptcy because most of its customers were using that service to download and share music that they didn't purchase. Copyright violation is theft. Using software illegally is theft. And high prices or a supposed need that we might have don't justify doing either of those things. And these are all just several examples of how we can engage in direct stealing without taking an item from a store or breaking into a home or holding someone up and taking their purse or wallet. Many other examples could be given of direct stealing. But there are also indirect ways to steal. And I have in your outline... Indirect ways of stealing. And I have five of those that I'd like to just go through relatively quickly for you. Indirect ways to steal. One of those is non-work. It's not a direct way of theft, not a direct way of stealing, but an indirect way. Non-work. Now, when someone works for an employer, that person is entitled to the wage that has been agreed to. Jesus said as much when he said in Luke 10, the worker deserves his wages. If someone works for you, they're worthy to be paid in accordance with their work. But the opposite is certainly true as well. If you're getting paid to work, then your work should be done. And a job not well done is theft. It's an indirect form, but it's a form nonetheless. To work seven hours instead of an eight-hour shift is theft. To treat, cheat your employer of the work that he or she is owed is theft. And the amount that you're getting paid is irrelevant. Once you agree to work for a certain wager, you're to carry out your job for that wage. So one indirect way to steal that many of us could be susceptible to is non-work when we're expected to work. Another one is tax evasion. Tax evasion. I saw a bumper sticker some time ago that said, don't steal, the government hates competition. Now we all hate taxes, but the truth is we could not live as we do, including in freedom, if we did not have some form of taxation. But we hate them nevertheless, and in addition we tend toward greediness, and so we're tempted to cheat on our income taxes to fudge the numbers just a bit. Now I'm told that avoiding paying unnecessary tax is perfectly legal while evading taxes you owe is illegal. You can avoid, but you can't evade. Okay, that's confusing for me. Let me make it simple. To use a dishonest means to keep from paying the taxes you owe is theft. We can oppose high tax rates, or if you so choose, you can be opposed to taxes at all, taxes in general, but we cannot decline to pay them. There are legitimate avenues of lowering a tax liability or a tax payment. And the believer can and probably should use every one of those available to him or her so long as it can be done honestly. Now, just as sort of an aside but related, perhaps some of you have imbibed the propaganda of some anti-tax groups that try to persuade you that you don't have to pay taxes because... Among other reasons, the 16th Amendment to the Constitution was established, which established the income tax was supposed to be temporary. Or another reason is because the IRS says our tax system is, quote, voluntary, so you can opt out of volunteering to pay. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Maybe you've advocated that. I knew of a professing Christian man, knew him personally who had his home raided and nearly lost everything because he had not paid taxes for years based on these and other false claims. It's contrary to what the Bible says about our obligations to the government. Romans chapter 13 says, Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Jesus was asked about the relationship between the spiritual realm, and the political realm. He was asked, Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and he said to them, Show me a denarius whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. And then Jesus said famously, Then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. A way of indirect theft is tax evasion. Here's a third. Dishonest business practices, dishonest business practices. In the book of Proverbs, it has much to say about honesty and honesty in our commercial dealings. Proverbs chapter 20, the Lord detests differing weights and dishonest scales do not please him. And again, in Proverbs 11, the Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his delight. Now, why this emphasis on weights and scales? Well, using an unjust weight was a problem in biblical times when someone would use a set of scales to weigh out a portion of something they were selling. On the one side of the scales, they would put the wheat or the grain or whatever was being purchased. On the other side, they would put a weight. The weight was measured at a certain measure so the person could see how much of what they were getting. But that weight may have been hollowed out inside, even though it might say on the outside the equivalent of One pound. It's really a half pound or three-quarters of a pound, and that was a common way of stealing from someone in a dishonest business practice. There's a story that's told about two neighbors, a baker and a, a farmer. The baker began to be suspicious of the farmer, suspecting he wasn't getting his money's worth when he paid for a pound of butter. He weighed the farmer's butter. On several occasions, he finally had him arrested for fraud. The judge asked the farmer at the trial, I presume you have scales. Yes, of course, Your Honor, the farmer replied. Any weights, the judge asked. No, replied the farmer, I don't have a set of weights. Well, then how do you hope to weigh accurately the butter you sell to your neighbor, the judge asked. Well, that's easy, the farmer said. When the baker began to buy from me, I decided to buy my bread from him. I've been using his one-pound loaves to balance my scales. If the weight of the butter is wrong, he has only himself to blame. Stealing in business practices. Common enough to be mentioned often in your Old Testament, especially in the book of Proverbs, stories like that. Failing to fulfill a business agreement is theft. When you agree to do something, to do less is a form of theft. Failing to deliver on what you promised is theft. Taking advantage of people is theft. Overcharging for something is a form of theft. Failure to pay back money borrowed is theft because it's property or services which you didn't pay for, which someone else, in fact, did have to pay for. And today and in our day, many people are in incredible amounts of debt mostly because of failing to be content with what God has given them. Now, let me just say, I'm not saying that all debt is wrong. Businesses acquire debt as part of doing business. A mortgage for a home is probably a good form of of debt. But once you enter into a borrowing agreement, you're under obligation to pay it back. And today it is becoming all too common to just factor in borrowing too much, but I can always declare bankruptcy. But legal bankruptcy does not free the Christian from his moral obligation to pay back what he owes and it should not be used as a device to get what we want and then walk away from the obligation that we've made. So this thing about do not steal all of a sudden becomes relevant. Even to us who would never walk into a store and put something in our purse or overcoat. Here's a fourth type of indirect stealing. Destruction of property. Vandalism is the destruction of property. In so doing, you've deprived the owner of the legitimate use of their own private property. In which case, restitution is owed. That's usually theft that springs from anger or jealousy, and so you want to destroy something that belongs to that person at whom you're angry or jealous. We can do this when we rent something that belongs to someone else, but we fail to treat it as our own. And we fail to leave it as we found it. It's a form of destruction of property, which is a form of theft. And then lastly, fifthly, an indirect form of stealing is non-giving. Non-giving. We cannot fail to give back to God what is due to him. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were condemned by God for not giving their tithes to him. The Book of Malachi. God says, "Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me." But you ask, "How how do we rob you in tithes and offerings?" You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me," says God. Now, you're all sitting there going, "Man, a couple of those indirect forms of stealing you already nailed me," and now you're going to talk about giving. This is really uncomfortable. So just stay with me as I as I go through this. First of all, let me be very clear that I don't believe in the New Testament We're taught the legal tithe as you were in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. It was part of the law. It was a commandment that was given. A tithe was 10%. And if you actually go through the Old Testament and you count up all of the tithes that they were to give in a given year, that would amount to 23 and a third percent of an Israelite's income. So... Set your mind at ease on that for just a moment, but it'll get ugly here in a, a bit and again. Now, I don't know who gives what at our church. It's a policy that we've had from day one. It's one I think that's very wise. I only see the bottom line number about what comes into our church through the faithful giving of, of God's people, and I don't know who gives it. So I just know two things. I know that we don't have independently wealthy people, at least as far as I know. And I also know that we wouldn't be able to minister effectively unless many people here gave as they do sacrificially. Now, some of you are new in your walk with the Lord. You have no idea what giving to God's work entails. And you haven't heard much about that from me because we don't talk about it a whole lot here when we take our offering. Almost without fail, I say if you're new here, don't feel obligated to give. Just pass the basket to the person next to you. And we don't say a whole lot about it unless we come to passages like this. But you've heard and shuddered, nevertheless, at this idea of tithing. As I've said, it comes from the pattern set in the Old Testament of giving a tenth of one's income to the Lord. It was a command in the Old Testament, not a command in the New. So you've rarely heard me even use the term tithe. But the New Testament does teach that giving is to be proportional to one's income. And you find that in 1 Corinthians 16. On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Now, as a result of the Old Testament command for tithing at 10%, and New Testament teaching about proportional giving, Many Christian people strive to give a tenth of their income to the Lord. They set that as a goal. And therefore, it's not uncommon for households to give five thousand, seven thousand, eight thousand, or more to the Lord and His work. Now I mention, and I'm just gonna, a few more times, mention some numbers for this reason. Without some guideline, people have no idea what to set a goal for giving in their family or their, their personal life should be. Unless you've been taught then on these matters, you may think that giving 1% or so of your income is in keeping with the principles of Scripture. I've given a statistic from time to time over the years that the average giving per person per year nationwide is $1,000 per person per year. And that's actually held true at our church over over the years. When our church was at 100 people, our income was... A little over a hundred thousand dollars, and when our church was at two hundred, it was a little over two hundred thousand dollars, and three hundred, and now that we're about four hundred, our income is projected to be this year a bit over four hundred thousand dollars. So that that thousand dollars per year per person has held for us. Now again, I don't know who gives that and in what proportions, and I never intend to to know that. But perhaps one way for you to learn to give well is to start with that one thousand dollars per year per person goal. And then if that is not 10%, then perhaps seek to move to 10% as many have. Now, for many people, that would mean getting your financial house in order, in order for you to be able to do that. And that would be a very worthy goal for getting debts aligned and taking advantage of some of the courses that we offer here last summer. We offered to you the financial freedom course that uh, Dave Ramsey does things like that to get your house in order so that you have more to give. So there, those are some wrong ways to acquire possessions. But there's also the right way. And I say that in your outline. The right way to acquire possessions. Verse 28 again says, Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands. So what's the right way to acquire possessions? It's to work. And that's the Bible's prescription throughout. Now, it says work with doing something useful with your hands. Do do not think that this is pitting doing something with your hands versus making a living working with your, your head, for example. But rather it's simply telling us that the work you do is to be effort that you've expended individually. Something that you're doing, whether it's mental work, whether it's whether it's, it's manual labor, whatever it is, it's something that you are doing in order to acquire wealth that then you can use for God. Now, rather than working, though, many people, including professing Christian people, are waiting for their, quote, ship to come in by lottery or lawsuit. Much energy, as well as limited res- the limited resources that one has for the lottery, for legal costs and time, much of that energy and resources goes into trying to gain wealth outside of work. So I just want to discourage you with regard to the lottery. Someone has said that lottery is a tax for people who are bad at math. The Bible extols... The value of work as the means, the right way of acquiring wealth and acquiring property. So important is this issue of working. Second Thessalonians 3 says this: if a man will not work, he shall not eat. That's from the Bible. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Now notice, it's if a man will not work, not if a man cannot work. There are some of you here that are not able to do work outside of your home. Because of disability or some other reason. And that's not condemned in 2 2 Thessalonians 3. It's if though a man will not work. Now, why then do people fail to use the right means of acquiring possessions? Some have thought that work is part of the curse. But work itself is not part of the curse that God gave to humanity. In fact, work was part of God's plan for us before the entrance of sin into God's world. In our Father's Day message last week, we looked at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. I remind you, it says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This is before the entrance of sin. The first man was assigned work to do. But the difficulty of work is a result of the fall, not work itself. So work is difficult due to sin. In fact, in chapter 3 of Genesis, after that first sin, and God is pronouncing consequences on the man and the woman and the serpent, this is what the Bible says. To Adam he said, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food. So work is not the curse, the difficulty of our work is. So work is difficult due to sin in general, but hear this, it's distasteful to us because of our own sin. Work is distasteful due to our own personal sin. And that's because being born into the world as sinners, disoriented from the purpose for which God has placed us here, we're no longer motivated to work for the pleasure of God. We see it as a necessary evil. I need it to do what I want, but work is also an obstacle to doing what I want as much as I'd like. And so work is a problem for us because we don't see it in its original design. In the words of those great theologians, lover boy, everybody's working for the weekend. And you see, we were not made to work for the weekend. We were made to work for God. And that's why the Bible then has to give these commands throughout Old Testament and New Testament. Things like you see in Colossians chapter three, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor. This lack of proper motivation for working that most of us are all of us come into this world afflicted with and most of us are still struggling with. This lack of proper motivation translates for some into laziness. And so the Bible warns about laziness and the pervasiveness of it. Proverbs 26, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He will not even bring it back to his mouth. It goes on to say, as a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns in his bed. And the one who has fallen into this mentality, into this kind of sluggardly Lazy approach to life makes extreme excuses for why he or she can't do what God has assigned. Again, Proverbs 26, the sluggard says, there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the streets. I can't go out there. It's dangerous. Proverbs 20, a sluggard does not plow in season, so at harvest time he looks but finds nothing. And the season for planting was often, in those times, rainy seasons. And it was cold and wet and it was unpleasant. And those were reasons for someone who was lazy to say, I can't, that is, I don't want, to go out and do it. And some will give spiritual reasons for not doing it. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 says this, I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. So we see our neighbor and we want what he has. We want his possessions, his position. We want his power. If the neighbor back in those days had a new chariot, we need a new chariot. In Solomon's day, that was called keeping up with the the Steinbergs. But one response then to that is the one given by the, the fool. Ecclesiastes says in the next verse, the fool folds his hands and ruins himself. So what he does is he says... What's it all worth anyway? I'm not going to be envious. That would be unspiritual. I'm just going to be idle and worthless. I'll do nothing and let someone else meet my needs. I'll presume upon the compassion of others. So work is God's right way of acquiring possessions. And yet we have many reasons to be demotivated from work. And then even if we are properly motivated to work as God has designed, we may have those in our households or those in our sphere of relationships who are not motivated to work as God designs. What do we do with a loved one who is in that situation? I've had this in my own family, where I've had folks who, in my family, who I was very close to, have come to me repeatedly for years To bail them out of situations in which they have have placed themselves. Remember a working definition of love that I've given you many times. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. And I've used that definition in making decisions about when and whether I should help someone. Who's has gotten themselves into a difficult situation. And when someone repeatedly does that, hear this, friends, I've concluded it is not loving. You are not doing what's in their best interest to enable them to do it again. And I encourage you, many of you, to use that as a guideline. Now, another reason that work has become demotivating for us is because we tend to take on our circumstances as our identity. And so we look at our work as our our identity. I am a salesman. I am an auto worker. Well, that's a description of your circumstance, but it doesn't give us your identity. And so in work, we're taking our work on as our identity, and related to that, we're expecting too much out of work. We're expecting it to fulfill us. And when you put all of that together, all of that tends to demotivate us from using vigorously The right means of acquiring wealth that God has given, and that is work. And then lastly, in your outline, there's the wrong way to acquire possessions. There's the right way. Ephesians 4 and verse 28 tells us that right way is to work. And then there is the reason to acquire possessions. And the reason is given in verse 28 as well. Doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something To share with those in need. So why should I work? One very important reason for working is that I might have in order to share with someone who is in need. Someone who cannot work. Someone who, for whatever reasons, is in difficult circumstances of their own. Now meeting your own needs and your family's needs is assumed in this. But then beyond that, the desire to work so that I have to give for other people. The motivation then for work is not to just amass money. It's not to establish a career to fulfill your dreams. Rather, it is to be a means to help others. Sacrifice, friends, for others is what Christians do because that's what Christ did. And so we should look, each of us should set as a goal, The ability to create what one author has called margin in our lives. Margin in our time and our schedules. Margin in our finances so that we have time and we have resources to give to others. Now, this mentality will require a change for many, if not most of us. But it can happen. Dr. Kent Hughes tells the story of a preacher at a funeral... The preacher was Dr. Roland Hill. Dr. Hill was there to bury his favorite church employee. He had met the man 30 years earlier when the man had attempted to hold him up at gunpoint. The preacher begged the man to put the gun away, and he said if he would come by the church, he would offer the man honest, gainful employment. He did, and he became a trusted and valuable worker and a devout Christian. So the trajectory you're on can, by Christ, be changed. But why? Why should I change the way I think about the acquisition and the use of possessions? Well, here's one motivation, just so that you can sleep at night and have your conscience salved. I heard about a shoplifter who wrote to a department store and said, I've just become a Christian and I can't sleep at night because I feel guilty. So here's $100 that I owe you. And then he signs his name, and and in a little postscript at the bottom, he says, P.S., if I still can't sleep, I'll send you the rest. (laughs) That's one lesser motivation, just so I can salve my conscience. But the real reason we should do this, friends, is what I began with. You see, the reason for us to put on these articles of clothing, every one of them, is because they help us emulate the character of our God. The reason I should work and not steal in obviously direct forms but also in the indirect forms is because failure to work and to continue in those modes of acquiring possessions does not emulate the character of God or does not show what we should believe about the character of God. If we steal directly or indirectly, it says we don't believe the owner will provide. It says something about God's power. Is he the creator and therefore the owner? It also says something about God's goodness. Will he supply my needs? So hear this, friends. If we bear his name, then we must uphold his reputation in all our dealings. If we say we trust him, then that should be evident in how we approach the acquisition and the preservation of property. It's his to begin with, and he can distribute it as he sees fit. And to resort to dishonesty is to say, I do not trust God to care for me. And in Jesus Christ, we see both the power and the goodness of God. Both of those. We see the power of God bringing about all of the circumstances of the life of the Messiah so that Galatians 4, 4, when the time was just right, God sent his son and he In his power, moved heaven and earth moved all of the circumstances to make it exactly the right time. And in his power, he raised him from the dead. And in his goodness, he gave himself on the cross to be the sin bearer for us and to give us new life. So friends, in Jesus Christ, do I ever have reason, do you ever have reason to doubt the power and the goodness of God? The answer to that is obviously No. I know he's all powerful. I know he is all good. And therefore, I can and should trust him with the right way to acquire possessions. So I say in your take home truth Christians show the difference Christ has made. We show that difference in the way we speak truth, verse 25. We show that difference in the way we seek peace, verses 26 and 27. And we show that difference in our desire to be generous with what God has entrusted to us in verse 28. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for meeting with us and allowing us the freedom and the grand privilege of opening your word and to be instructed therein. About who you are and who we are. About the gulf that exists between your character and ours. And to be reminded in the good news of the gospel that Jesus has bridged that gap for us. Lord, we thank you that in Him we stand before you and, com- before you complete. In Jesus, you see us not through our sin, not through our struggle, but through the perfect righteousness of Christ. And so we thank you for His perfect life that gives us that righteousness. We thank you for His death on the cross that pays the penalty for our sin, sin with which we still struggle. And so, Lord, we ask you, Holy Spirit, we ask you to convict us, convict us of those struggles and those areas of our lives where we fall short in particular on this issue of how we approach possessions, how we approach the right acquisition of possessions through work and help us then this week. Only by your help can we do it to make changes in our lives that accurately reflect what we believe and know about you, that you are all powerful, you know, all good and you will supply all of our needs. And through this means of changing us, convicting us of our confession and our repentance, making us more like Jesus, that is how we will show you to those around us. And that is how we will glorify you, by showing your character to those you bring us in contact with. May we do that this week and then the days ahead. For your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.